Hi, Dave Emery here. This is Former Record Program number 1288. Interview number 25 with Jim Diagenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on February 3rd of the year 2023. And once again, it is my pleasure and privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim Diagenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed and JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, and the man selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for the recent documentary, JFK Revisited. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Nice to be here, Dave. Now, we're going to go into, in this interview, an element of information that figures prominently in JFK Revisited. Uh, Sadly, Barry Ernst, who uh, sets forth what we're going to be doing and who also uh, was engaged in some very uh, tenacious long-term research into this, uh, could not be with us. He's got some family problems, uh, health problems. Uh but the question of, quote, the girl on the stairs, really a reference to a woman named Vicki Adams. Uh, I wonder if you would tell us the significance of what she saw and what some co-workers of hers saw and how that testimony is at variance with the Warren Commission's thesis. Right. To understand this, there is only one set of stairs that goes from the top to the bottom of the Texas School Book Depository building. All right. There's another set of stairs that goes from the first floor to the second floor. But the other way people got around was through uh, elevators. Okay. All right. Now, on the day of the assassination, there is Victoria Adams, Sandy Stiles, Elsie Dorman, all right, and the supervisor, Miss Garner, Dorothy Garner, all right. They are in the fourth floor. That is the location of the Scott Forsman office. And they were, as you know, big book dealers at that time especially textbooks, you know, for grade schools, all right? So that'd be perfectly logical for them to be in that building. Now, they're on the fourth floor, and they're all looking out the window, which looks into Dealey Plaza, right? And they're watching the motorcade go by, right? All four of them, all four women were there. Now, the Warren Commission tells us that Lee Harvey Oswald was on the sixth floor. He was a few windows down from uh, the, well, he was actually almost at the corner of Maine and Houston, all right? Uh, and so he's peering out that window with his trusty Manicure Carcano rifle, all right? And he is waiting for Kennedy to get into his range, and he goes ahead and fires three shots, all right? He then 
runs to the other side of the Texas Bulldog sixth floor, stuffs the rifle between the boxes, doesn't even pick up the shells, right, and runs down the only set of stairs, as I mentioned, that is going to take him down to the second floor, which is where the Warren Commission says that Officer Baker and Supervisor Truly saw him sipping a Coke, okay? Now, what happens is that Adams and Stiles saw the shooting, okay? They saw the car disappear underneath the trestle, and then they ran across the office to those same stairs, all right? Now, Dave, let me tell you something. I was on those stairs before the Texas School Book Depository was completely sold to the Sixth Floor Museum. All right, they were in the transition then. This was 91. Back then, you could look out the window. You can't do that now. And you could fly up and down those stairs, which I don't think you can do that anymore. But I did. All right. Now, those stairs are not the kind of stairs you get in modern office buildings. In modern office buildings, the stairs you usually get are kind of short, and they're usually cushioned with some kind of fabric or something, okay? Those stairs are not like that at all. They weren't like that at all. They were the old rickety wooden, okay, with no cloth around them at all, okay, that you'd see in the in the Old West. So my question, and why I wanted to include this in the script, it's hard enough to believe that Stiles and Adams would not see Oswald on those stairs. It's almost impossible to believe that they wouldn't have heard him, okay? Not on those kind of stairs, all right? But they didn't. They didn't. Neither one. And this ended up being... I can't tell you how big of a problem it was for the Warren Commission, all right? But it's very revealing, very revealing how they approached the problem. And what I'm going to say is not new to you, because I'm sure you're familiar with this, but it, it might be new to a lot of people you know, who didn't see Oliver Stone's film, uh, where Barry Ernest, the author of Girl on the Stairs, we gave him about 15 minutes, okay, to talk about this. And he was very good, I thought. Really sorry he couldn't be here. His wife is having some health problems, He was, or else he would be here tonight. All right. But anyway, there is no doubt in anybody's mind that the lawyers on the Warren Commission understood what a huge problem this presented to them. All right, because if, if if what they're saying about Oswald is that he takes the shots, runs the other side of the warehouse, stuffs the rifle down, then goes out the back and starts flying down the stairs, you know, 
one of the most potent things you can have in a criminal case is an alibi. In this case, it will be a negative alibi. Oswald was not where he should have been if the Warren Commission case is correct. All right. All right. So realizing what a huge, huge obstacle this was, they decided on some countermeasures. All right. And this is why, of course, see, I've often said, and I hope everybody understands, we believe in the adversary system in our court cases. All right. And what this consists of is, in a nutshell, you have the prosecutor on the one side, you have the defense lawyer on the other side, and you have a judge in the middle making rulings, and you have a jury off to the side. All right. You can appeal to the judge to make certain rulings in your favor if you think the other side is being unfair or presenting a warped picture. And that's why we have what they call rules of evidence, rules of testimony, okay, to prevent a runaway district attorney from railroading somebody, okay? Now, as I talk about what happened to Victoria Adams, I want everybody to understand that this could not have happened in a court of law. It would have never happened in a court of law, all right? The first thing they did, they decided to isolate her alone, okay? She said, why don't you call Sandy to the stand? And David Bellin, the Warren Commission attorney, said something like, we don't need her, we have you. Now, right then and there, you understand the fixes in. Because any first-year defense lawyer understands that if you have corroborative testimony for your witness, that makes the first witness stronger because you have somebody to back him or her up. In this case, as we will see, there would have been a third witness also, okay, which we didn't know about at the beginning. So this is the first thing they did, all right? They isolated. You will not see Sandy Stiles' name in the Warren Commission volumes, all right? She did give a statement to the FBI, all right? But you won't see her name in the Warren Commission volumes. So this is the first thing that they did. She then said, why can't we do a reconstruction? Now, would that, would, that would have made perfect sense, would it not? This would have made perfect sense. Okay, you get somebody imitating Oswald up on the sixth floor. All right. He fakes like he's firing the rifle, runs to the other side, then runs down the stairs, and you have them coming out because they said they backed out of the window at about the time the car went under the trestle, and you would see. Would they have seen him or would they have heard him? They didn't do that. They didn't do that, which is amazing. You know, any defense lawyer worth the salt, you know, would have demanded they do a reconstruction of the event, but they did, but they didn't do that. All right. They then realized that they had to distort her testimony because she said they were on the stairs about 15 to 30 seconds after the final shot. 
they understood what a problem that was. A very, very serious problem. So they enlisted two men who worked at the Texas School Book Depository to try and smear her testimony, okay, by saying that Lovelady and Shelley had gone over to the across uh, Elm Street and been to the railroad yards, okay, and then they came back, and it was only then that they saw Victoria Adams. They didn't see her before, meaning that she delayed coming down the stairs, all right, longer than she said she was. And they actually put this in the Warren Report. If you read the Warren Report, it says, you know, that she didn't come down the stairs 15 to 30 seconds, about a minute, she says, they say. They they re, they literally rewrote her testimony, all right? Okay, now, as I said, none of these would have been allowed in a court of law, all right? But that is how dangerous they pictured Victoria Adams to be to the official story. And she was. She And she was. There's, there's no doubt about it. The combination of her and Styles would have been pretty deadly, I think. You know, because Styles backed up Vicky on everything. All right. And, and, uh, and Barry had her in his book also. All right. So what happens is that David Bellin, all right, um, refuses to do any of the things that Victoria Adams said that she wanted done. None of them. All right. None of, not one. So then Victoria begins to think that the local FBI and the local Dallas police are going to harass her about what her testimony is. So she moves out of her apartment in Dallas to another apartment miles away, right? And she doesn't give a forward address. She doesn't give a forwarding address. One night... Who should turn up at her new apartment is Jim Lavelle. Jim Lavelle is one of the officers in the Dallas Police Department. And in fact, he became world famous because he is one of the guys, I believe he's on Oswald's right, when Oswald comes out of the uh, into the foyer area right before Jack Ruby shoots him. He's got a white hat on, all right? He's got Oswald by one side, all right? You can see the expression on his face when Ruby steps forward and, and shoots Oswald. And eventually, Oswald, of course, dies. Well, Lavelle shows up at her apartment one night. And she's wondering, how the heck did he get my new address? Because I didn't tell anybody, all right? And Lavelle begins to talk to her about her alleged testimony and about her seeing Lavelle, excuse me, seeing uh, 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 Shelly and Lovelady. And she, and she, well, wait a minute. She says, what are you doing here? And he made up a story about how they had lost her testimony or there had been a fire or something. 
okay, in the office. And so he had to retake. Now, now this is, this is utterly bizarre right on the surface. I mean, I don't have to explain why, because by this time, the Dallas police are out of the story. The investigation is being conducted out of Washington and the main investigatory bodies are the FBI and the Secret Service, all right? The Dallas police is not doing any investigating at this time, at this, because they're, they're completely gone. After the, after Oswald was dead, okay, there wasn't any, there wasn't going to be any trial, obviously. And so Johnson appointed this commission and the Secret Service and the FBI were the two main investigating bodies, at least domestically, the CIA overseas, all right? And so, there's no reason on earth for Lavelle to be at her apartment going through her testimony again. Somebody obviously put him up to this. All right. Probably somebody on the Warren Commission put him up to this to either try and intimidate her or try and get her to change her story. All right. See, this is how potent Victoria Adams was. You know, and you can imagine how powerful her testimony would have been in a court of law with her corroborating witnesses with her. All right. You know, so this goes on. All right. And then finally, David Bellin goes ahead and interviews her for uh, the Warren Commission. All right. And there ends up, she ends up wanting to, after, cause after everybody gave their testimony, you were allowed to get a copy of it. All right. And, uh, and, and, and make any corrections you want. All right. And so clearly when Love Lady and Shelly were being examined, Okay. I think it was Love Lady who gave the game away by actually mentioning Victoria Adams' names before Joseph Ball, the Warren Commission lawyer, even mentioned her name. Okay. All right. So that meant they had been employed or for this bit of collusion to try and discredit Vicky. All right. Okay. And so when Bellin starts talking to uh Victoria, right? He then asks her at the end, is there anything you would like to correct? Okay? And of course, and then he says, we'll send it to you. All right? If I remember correctly, Victoria, none of her corrections end up being made in in her transcript okay so there ended up being a dispute between what she said and what she didn't say so barry goes down to the national archives and he asks the archivist there i don't want to see the transcript i want to see I want to actually hear the tape recording because I know that was went on for all the witnesses. 
Okay. So that's what he asked for. Well, a few weeks later, he got the bad news that, guess what? There is no tape recording. Now, this would have been the stenographer's recording of Victoria Adams' Warren Commission testimony. Right. And that tape had been destroyed. Yes, that's the message that he got from the from the archives. Now, Barry didn't stop there. And by the way, understand this. Barry pursued this investigation on his own for I'm not talking years, I'm talking decades. All right. He worked on this, you know, in his spare time for years on end. And then when the computer age came in, Barry was not very big on the computers and the internet and that, but his son told him, you know, you should get something, you know, uh, for your own private use. And maybe you can contact Victoria Adams. So Barry did this. And Barry knew a state trooper. I think he lives in Pennsylvania, who is familiar with how to search for people. All right. And so one day, he says, I think I tracked her down. All right. I think I tracked down this Victoria Adams for you. And he gives him the information. And guess what? He had found her. I think this was in 1993 or something like that. Okay. They found Victoria Adams and he got to interview her. All right. You know, and she told him all about this crazy stuff. And then he told her this last incredible piece of information that he found out later on. They were friends until she passed away. Okay. And I think, I believe it was in 1999 that he found a document that was sent from Marsha Joe Stroud, who was an assistant in the uh, Justice Department in Dallas, Texas. All right. And she had sent a memo to Jay Lee Rankin, who was the chief counsel for the Warren Commission. In that memo, it says that words are the effect that we talked to Miss Garner and she backs up everything that Vicky said. The date of this letter was, I believe, in June or July of 1964. Now, this is how bad the Warren Commission was, all right? Because the Warren Commission was going to stay together until September. They started closing down in August, and then they got together for the printing of the report, which was in September. They had approximately two months to talk to Garner. And like Sandy Stiles, there is not a trace in any of the Warren Commission volumes about 
any attempt to talk to the supervisor, Garner. Now, the reason Garner is so important, and again, you have to visualize this, all right? Vicky and Sandy are going down the stairs. Garner stays there. She stays on the fourth floor, okay? She said, A, I never saw Oswald on those steps. B, I watched until Vicky and Sandy disappeared down the stairs. And I then saw Baker and Truly coming up. Now, I don't have to tell you, that would be like the last hammer on the nail, okay? If she didn't see anybody there and she watched Vicky and Sandy disappear down the steps and the next thing she saw was Baker and Truly coming up the steps, I mean, that is, you know, as attorneys say, that's like putting a bow tie on the box, all right, you know? I don't see how it gets any better than that. But like I said, this was too good. It was too exculpatory for the Warren Commission. And so you will not see, like you won't see Sandy Stiles, you won't see Garner, you won't see Dorothy Garner's name in the Warren Commission volumes. And the Martha Martha Joe's trial record to J. Lee Lincoln was deliberately uh, kept from view by the Warren Commission. Right. That wasn't found out. I believe if if there, I think we talked about the ARB. The Assassinations Record and Review Board was appointed in 1994, set up in 1994, to declassify everything they could find on the Warren Commission and this case. I believe if it wasn't for them, we would have never found that document because that document was found a year after they closed their doors, okay? It was found in 1999. They closed the doors in 1998. I believe there's a definite cause and effect. And I believe, and I'll go even further than that, I believe it was meant to be buried. They never wanted anybody to see it. And if it wasn't for the ARB, I don't think anybody would have seen it. All right. And so that, see, so when people tell you, well, what happened with all these declass, well, that, this is one of the things that happened with these, this is one of the most important things that happened with these declassified documents that's new and that the, that the media will not tell you about. What I believe, and I think any rational thinking person would believe is, is very, very important. You have four witnesses saying the same thing, that they left the window when the car disappeared under the trestle. They spaced out how wide the office was. They said it would take about 15 to 30 seconds to get across, you know, from the one window to the door to the foyer and then go down the stairs. All right. You have four witnesses saying that. You have one who stayed there. In that area. Okay. And she agrees with what they said that she didn't see anybody in those stairs until uh, we should, I, we should explain that, shouldn't we? I don't think we explained that. Okay. 
Officer Marion Baker was a motorcycle officer, and he was following the motorcade. When the shooting went off, he saw all these birds disappear from the top of the Texas School Book Depository building. All right. So he decided to park his motorcycle outside, and he then went ahead and entered the building. Okay. The official story has him uh, meeting up with the supervisor, Roy Truly. Right. Roy truly then goes ahead and they start going up the, uh, they tried an elevator. It wasn't working. So they went up the stairs. The official story has them peering into the, uh, second story soda machine diner area. Okay. And they, say that Oswald was there. And Baker asked, who who was this? Okay. And he said, he, he works here. He's okay. And then they proceeded up the stairs. So when she says, when Garner says, she didn't see Oswald on those stairs. Okay. But she did see Baker and Truly. All right. Then that's pretty solid evidence. All right. That, that, um, he wasn't there. Okay. That he had not been walking down the stairs. No, no. He, he, got, he, he got up to the he got up to the soda machine from the first floor. Like I said, there was that other set of stairs that went from the first first floor to the second floor. That's how he got there. Uh, the point that I want to go into some pairs of individuals in this scenario that I think will clarify things for the audience. Now, once again, Marion Baker was a Dallas cop. He was going up the stairs with Roy Truly, who was Oswald's supervisor. Uh, at this point, we might want to mention something that Doug Horn found out about uh, the paying of Roy Truly. This, we, we talked about this in an earlier interview. Well, Doug, Doug Horn worked for the ARB. He was in contact with their uh, uh, advisor at the Social Security office, okay, because they couldn't get tax information, so they thought they would get it from Social Security records information. Well, one of the things that this woman who was her contact there said is that um, we don't have any Social Security records for truly. Now, this is very interesting, okay, to say the least, because it indicates he was being paid outside the Texas School Book Depository Management. All right? All right? And we know who owned, well, Dave, you know who who owned the building. General (laughs) Roy Byrne. We'll talk about him in a minute. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so this gets very interesting. Now, maybe there's a way to explain this. Uh, maybe because he was on the board or something, he got paid through a different, uh, you know, but not to take social security out of your, 
You know, that's very weird. Okay. That's very weird. All right. So, and now I don't also should say this. And I think you know this. The way that the police got on to Oswald was through Roy Truly. Because if you examine what happened that day, Oswald said he left at about 12.33. And he said, I didn't think there was going to be any work, any more work that day. And he was right. Well, Roy Truly said that he took a roll call. Okay. And this, this is very debatable as to this roll call. But he then went and told the police that Oswald was the only guy missing. And he, by the way, he wasn't the only guy missing. Okay. And that is how the police first got his name. That is how they first got his name was through Roy Truly. All right. So Roy Truly had a pretty busy day that day, I would say. Now, let me add something else because I think this is important and it's interesting. There's a lot of debate these days inside the critical community as to whether or not there was this second floor encounter at the soda machine. The reason why there's a debate about it is that Marion Baker, when he went to write up his summary, okay, of what he did that day, he never mentioned Oswald. And what makes that even weirder is this. When he was in the witness room writing up his report, Oswald was sitting right across from him. So you would think quite naturally, if I'm the policeman who encountered Oswald on the second floor, okay, and asked the supervisor if he was okay, that he would go over and say, aren't you the guy I just encountered? You know, but no, he didn't. You won't see that in his report, which is very, very weird. You know, so that has been fueled a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, counter thinking now, whether or not this event really happened. But for the auspices of what we're talking about here, which is really Victoria Adams and Sandy Stiles and Dorothy Garner, let's assume that that it did happen. Okay. But the main points that I think are the listeners should understand is that it's very, very hard to believe that Sandy and Vicky would not have seen or heard Oswald as they're going down the stairs, or that Dorothy Garner would not have seen anybody going down those stairs also. And the next person she would see was Baker and truly coming up the stairs. All right. This is all, and, and remember, remember, as they say, it's what the prosecution hides from view that is so revealing in a criminal case, what they attempt not to tell the defense. And there's no doubt that Bellin and Ball who were carrying the, uh, uh, the little tugboat here on this whole incident were very, very clear in their tracks about what they did not want to reveal 
in their report, and they went to extreme measures to make sure the public didn't find out about it. You know, um, Oliver Stone dealt with this, by the way, in his first film, JFK. I'm sure you're aware of it. He has that scene with Gary Oldman, who's playing Oswald, coming down the stairs, and he has to dodge Vicky and Sandy. Okay? It's an imaginary scene. You know, what if, what, what if they were saying, and he, how could they not have seen him? All right? Um, and by the way, Oliver told me, and I didn't know this, you know, he wrote that scene. He remembered coming across Sandy Stiles' name, you know, and so he wanted to put that scene in there, all right? Uh, and then, of course, for the documentary, we actually had Barry Ernest, okay, uh, working with us. We uh, He met us down in Georgetown. He lives in Pennsylvania. And so he was one of the featured, I, mean, I think we gave him more time than any guest we had. You know, but that's, he was very good. He came across very well, I thought. You know, it took him a long time to write that book. Um, a couple things, Jim. Um, there is a, another methodological consideration that I think we need to, uh, refresh our listeners' memories about. And that was formulated by Peter Dale Scott, uh, the brilliant Berkeley researcher who observed the quote, the cover up obviates the conspiracy. Now, even though you have, in addition to Vicki Adams, you have uh, Sandy Stiles, you have Elsie Dorman and Dorothy Garner uh, corroborating Vicki Adams' testimony, David Bell says, we don't need them, we've got you. That is an element of cover-up. Uh, when Martha Jo Stroud, an assistant U.S. attorney, sent a letter to J. Lee Rankin, uh, that letter was withheld by the Warren Commission. Uh, the stenographer's recording of Vicki Adams' testimony was destroyed. These are all elements of cover-up. Uh, you noted, too, that even though Vicki Adams had moved and that there was no record, officially at least, of where she had moved to, uh, Mr. Lavelle from the Dallas PD showed up supposedly because there had been a fire which had destroyed her previous testimony and uh, that he needed to take that testimony again. The, LA, uh, the Dallas PD, by the was out of the investigative picture at this point. And the account of Vicky's testimony as recorded by the Dallas PD differed significantly from what she told the Warren Commission. So that is yet another element of cover-up. Um, I also want to clarify, Jim, that when... Uh, at, at the entrance of the Texas School Book Depository, Billy Lovelady and uh, Mr. Shelley were present watching the motorcade. Then they ran over to the rail yard behind the grassy knoll to see what everybody else was looking at. Then they came back, and Vicki Adams stated that she did not see them when she got to the ground floor, meaning that they had not yet returned from the rail yards behind the grassy knoll. Uh, and yet the Warren Commission said that uh, she had seen them. So that is yet another element of cover-up. There is another factor, too, Jim. Uh, 
there were two gentlemen who were cited by the Warren Commission as able to confirm Lee Harvey Oswald's presence uh, in the sixth floor where he supposedly fired the shots from. One was named Charles Gibbons and another Howard Brennan. And yet their testimonies fall apart as well. Uh, tell us about Mr. Gibbons and Mr. Brennan and uh, the melting of their, uh, their, their, their witness case, so to speak. Okay. Um, Howard Brennan was the, if you want to say it, um, he was the allegedly star witness for the Warren Commission. It was Brennan who they relied upon to put Oswald in what they call the sniper's desk window. All right. Uh, he was, I've been researching this case a very long time. He's the only guy that I've ever been able to trace who could actually do that. All right. Well, there were many problems with Brennan's testimony. First of all, um, he refused to ID Oswald when he went down to the uh, official lineup. Okay. Another problem. How could he give a description as the height and weight if the window was not a floor-to-ceiling window? And it was not, okay? I've actually been in the window. It's not a floor-to-ceiling window, all right? You know, but he did that, all right? Um, if you look at films of him, I mean, it doesn't even look like he's looking at the right building. It looks like he's looking at the Daltex building, which is on the other side of Main Street, okay? Um, so with Howard Brennan, you had all kinds of problems. Now, what makes it even worse is when the House Select Committee wanted him to come in to second investigation in the 1970s, Brennan wouldn't come in for an interview. When they said, <coughs> well, we can subpoena you. He goes, I'll hire a lawyer. I'll resist a subpoena. And he goes, we'll cite you for contempt. Fine, I'll see you in court. He was determined that he was not going to say a word to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Now, what kind of a witness is this? Okay, you know. But Brennan was one of the guys that, you know, that they they fundamentally relied on. Now, as far as Givens goes, they relied on Givens to put Oswald on the sixth floor right before the shooting because nobody could do that. In fact, most of the witness testimony, all right, had Oswald on one of the lower floors. There were about three witnesses, okay, that had him on the lower foes uh, right prior to this shooting. But Givens changed his story, okay, and said that he forgot his cigarettes and he caught an elevator going up to the sixth floor and he saw Oswald there, okay, 
right. Now, Sylvia Marr wrote a absolutely devastating article about this, all right, and I think it was the Texas Observer, you know, something like that. And this was in the 1970s where she just found some new material on Givens, where Givens had some legal problems with the Dallas police at the time, all right? And so she put two and two together, and she figured, oh, this is what he got out of changing his story and selling out Oswald. Now, you want to hear the the worst part of this? The worst part of this, okay, uh, was that CBS actually used Givens, I believe, in their uh, either 1967 or 1975 show, okay? Knowing there were all these problems, okay? And that that's how bad the CBS shows were. Neither one of these two witnesses would stand up in a court of law under a cross-examination, all right? Um. Here, let me let, let me clarify something, Dave. Yeah. Let, let, let me let me read this from the interview in the book JFK Revisited with Barry Ernest. All right. Wasn't there an issue because the Dallas police followed her at the time? Hadn't the FBI and the Warren Commission taken over the case? Was the police authorized to do that? Barry, that's correct. They interview when they interviewed her in February of sixty-four the Dallas police were no longer involved in the investigation. And in that Dallas police interview, that was the first time she mentioned seeing Billy Lovelady and William Shelley on the first floor, a comment that was repeated two months later in her Warren Commission testimony. But in all the years I knew Vicki, she continually told me that she never made that statement to the Dallas police or the commission. And she actually felt those words had been inserted into her testimony to specifically make her appear wrong. I went to the National Archives searching for her original testimony, and I wanted to see if she actually said she saw Shelley and Lovelady on the first floor. I wanted the original stenographer's tape, okay, in the room with David Bellin as he interviewed Vicki Adams. I knew the archives had all these tapes for all the witnesses they did, but when I asked about Vicky's tape, it was missing. They couldn't find it. And later I learned the tape had been destroyed by the Warren Commission. Now, if that is not incriminating, I don't know what the heck is. All right? The one missing tape? Okay? <laughs> I mean, it's almost funny. Um, almost, yeah. That one of my favorite quotes comes from Nietzsche. A joke is the epigram on the death of a feeling. <laughs> and uh I think that's that, a good that, one. Uh, well it, it, it it's very sad but it, it is uh true um a point Jim, although it is not discussed in uh, the uh documentary nor the book that I can uh, that I recall but general Roybert, we alluded to him earlier he was the man 
who owned the Texas School Book Depository building where all of this is taking place. And he is a very interesting individual. Uh, tell us about General Bernard, the Civil Air Patrol, Oswald, and Ferry. Well, this is very interesting. Um, Bird was a very, very wealthy individual. And this is the kind of guy who Lyndon Johnson hung out with, other very wealthy people in Dallas hung out with. He owned the building for a very, very long time, all right, decades, all right. And he was in a, I don't have to say this, of course, he was an extreme right winger who really believed in the imminent war between the United States and the Soviet Union. So he was one of the original founders of what we call the Civil Air Patrol, or what you know goes by the name of CAP, C-A-P, all right? And so what makes this even more interesting is that it was through the auspices of the CAP that David Ferry first met Lee Harvey Oswald. I believe it was probably like in 1958 or something. Oh, no, earlier than that, probably 55, all right, that he first met him. And I should also add that Ferry took a lot of trips back and forth between Texas and Louisiana. He would take his cadets all the way to Dallas sometimes, and they would fly back. You know, nobody knows how Ferry had access to these uh, to these um, big, you know, uh, cargo planes, but that's what they would do sometimes, all right? And so, you know, people wonder, as, you know, we are doing right here, you know, um, was there a connection between all these things? It's, it's, it's something that, of course, has never been explored, you know, like so much else hasn't been explored in this case, Okay. But that's a very interesting connection. A lot of people believe, you know, maybe there was something there. Uh, obviously, Roy Bernard, uh, owning the Texas School Book Depository, founding the Civil Air Patrol, the vehicle through which Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry begin networking all the way back in the 50s. And then uh, there is very convincing evidence that uh, Oswald and Ferry continued to operate together under the auspices of the Guy Bannister 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place Epicenter in New Orleans. And uh, that obviously figures into the investigative uh, situation vis-a-vis JFK right. in a big way. Uh, going back to Roy Byrne, now again, this is not, mentioned in JFK Revisited, but Joseph McBride in his book Into the Nightmare mentions that uh, Roy Bird and someone else whose name escapes me, but they made a big purchase of Ling Tenko Vought LTV stock in the immediate, uh, well, basically uh, just before the JFK assassination. Uh, what happened with that stock? What is the significance of that? And then, uh, well, well, basically, what, what, what transpired as a result of the assassination that affected that stock? 
Dave, I hate to tell you this, but you got me stumped on that one. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, late, uh, tw- late. Tw- tw- 25 shows and you stumped me finally. <laughs> well, uh, it, it was not uh, the limit, but this, this is a very significant, and again, the, the, uh, I think Peter Bale Scott talked about this as well in, uh, one of his unpublished essays. But in, uh, in, uh, Into the Nightmare of a Joseph McBride, uh, General Roy Truly and, uh, and there's General Roy Byrne, uh, and someone else whose name escapes me purchased, I think, like three million dollars worth of Ling Tempo Vought stock. Uh, that was in the immediate run-up to the assassination. As a result of the assassination, the plans for the Vietnam War went forward, and that stock that was originally, I believe, put a question mark by this, but I think the original purchase price of that block of stock was $3 million. But then because of the F-111 contracts, and the Vietnam War and the tremendous amount of spending that stock appreciated to roughly twenty six million dollars or something like that. The exact numbers for the question. But the point is that Roy Truly uh excuse me, there I go again. Uh as Ronald Reagan said, there you go again. Um <laughs> the uh Roy Byrd made a whole bunch of money off of that very prescient stock purchase just mm-hmm. prior to the assassination, which as a result of Kennedy's, uh, as a result of LBJ's Vietnam policies and the resulting spending on uh, the aerospace industry, then appreciated exponentially after that. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, let's just say General Byrne was in the know. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. And there's a, there's actually a picture of Byrd and uh, LBJ in the stands at I think a University of Texas football game. Okay. So yes, they they were friends. A, a question, Jim. Uh Billy Lovelady. Now he and Mr. Shelley were two of the people that were employees of the Texas School Book Depository and they were standing on the ground floor watching the motorcade. Then when Kennedy was shot, they went over, as I mentioned earlier, to the rail yard right behind the grassy mill, because many people, many eyewitnesses were running up the grassy mill for where they believed correctly, I believe, some of the shots came from. Then they returned to the Texas School Book Depository. There is a picture of someone in the doorway of the Texas School Book Depository as the motorcade was going by, who certainly bears a resemblance to Lee Harvey Oswald. I don't know what has become of this in the years since I first encountered it, but the Warren Commission, as I recall, rebutted that possible allegation by claiming that that was Billy Lovelady, even though Billy Lovelady was wearing a shirt that appeared to be different than the shirt that that unnamed individual was wearing. Do you know what has come of that controversy vis-a-vis the assassination and that photograph? Again, it's, it's not the clearest photograph in the world, but it does definitely bear a resemblance to Oswald. Yeah, it's, it's, if, it's, it's, it's Love Lady. That particular lady. picture is, uh, yeah, that that is him. But I'm sure you're aware of the other controversy about Prayer Man. Are you aware of that one? Uh, about who? Prayer Man. No, no, that one there's, I'm not familiar with. There's another figure in the doorway, okay, um, right before the glass 
we entered the glass doors. And a lot of people believe that this is Oswald. And all you have to do is look it up on the Internet. There's many websites. There's more than one about this. There's one by Bart Camp, a very good researcher, and he devoted his whole site to this. And they believe that this is Oswald, okay? And I have to say, it does look like him. I'm not going to come out and say it is him, you know, but it does look like him. So just look it up, Prayer Man, on the web, and you'll find it. Is that prayer like Petition the Lord with Prayer? Yes. Uh, what is the genesis of that nickname? What is the genesis of what? Uh, the nickname Prayer Man. Oh, because it looks like he has hands together. Praying. Okay. Okay. So that's why they called it prayer man. You know, he might have like whatever, like a soda pop in between his hands or something, but it looks like he's, he has his hands together praying. So that's why they call it prayer man. And this prayer man was on the ground floor of the Texas school. But no, he, he, he's up, he's up the stairs standing right outside the glass enclosure. If you're looking at the picture, he's on the left. Okay. Uh, the point being that if, for the sake of argument, it was Oswald, obviously he could not have been in the sixth floor window obviously, firing obviously. the fatal shots. Right. Okay. Uh, so that, that, uh, emphasizes that. Uh, Jim, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Uh, once again, if, because hopefully the audience has had their appetite whetted, for more information, and more information is indeed available. Uh, tell us about KennedysandKing.com, about Black Op Radio, and about the documentary and the accompanying book. Okay. Um, my website is called KennedysandKing.com. There's reviews of books. There's research articles, news items there. Um, there's I'm a semi-regular on Black Op Radio out of Vancouver with the host of Leno Sanic. You can find him on the web also. The three-disc DVD of JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed, you can get it at almost any major website, including Amazon. And then the book, which I hope everybody will take an interest in, which I actually read from tonight, okay, is JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, by James D. Eugenio with an introduction of, by Oliver Stone. It has both screenplays fully annotated, and it has about 28 interviews of things we couldn't get into the film with a lot of really good people like Henry Lee, like David Talbot, like uh, Barry Ernest, like Jefferson Morley, etc. Okay? So well, please, go out, please go out and get that book. Yep, many of whom we have had as guests, and I should stress that neither myself nor any of the stations that carry this program get any money from this. Also, uh, com is my website. All of the interviews that we are doing with Jim D. Jamie, in fact, everything I've done in my whole life, 44 years in print and audio, is available for free on the SpitfireList.com website. And as soon as our engineer uh, gets the audio uh, ready to go, all of the interviews that I've been doing with Jim Jamie about JFK Revisited are, like everything else I've done, available for free on www.spitfirelist.com. 
And so that is a place to go where you can get uh, all kinds of information. And again, my entire life's work, 44 years, uh, is available for free. Everything in print and in audio. So this concludes for the record program number 1288. Interview number 25 with Jim Eugenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on February 3rd of the year 2023. For Jim Eugenio, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.